Welcome back to the Off of the Couch podcast. Maggie here. My guest today is Dr. Chris Kenobi. Dr. Kenobi is an ophthalmologist and a researcher and lecturer on the subject of nutrition and degenerative disease. And he's especially known for his research on age-related macular degeneration. He has a new book coming out May 15th that he will be telling us all about. Here's Dr. Chris Kenobi. Today I'm republishing an episode with Dr. Chris Kenobi that I recorded back when his book came out last May. If you listened last week, I interviewed Suzanne Alexander, his co-author and researcher, and you would know that they made a trip to a number of Pacific islands and visited a number of tribes that are still eating in ancestral ways, at least to some extent. Don't miss those pictures and videos on Instagram and YouTube if you haven't seen them. So here it is. Well, thanks so much for uh, volunteering to uh, answer some of my questions and and tell us a little about bit about your new book. And um, but I mostly uh, became interested in your information when I saw your first video. I believe it was about macular degeneration and how you really tracked that down. Do you want to just start with your whole story? Yeah, sure, Maggie. And, you know, good to see you. And thanks for having me on the show. It's an honor and it's a pleasure. Um, So um, my story is long and it's not really all that pertinent to what I do, quite frankly, except that it's, uh, you know, my interest in nutrition is born out of my own suffering. And uh, that goes back to Um, at least when I was in my early 30s, and I started to develop arthritis, and uh, I suffered really uh, progressively. uh, I suffered progressively uh, uh, to greater degrees as my life went on. And I just thought it was because I was getting older. And um, but it became so severe by the time I was 50 years old, that which was 12 years ago that I um, uh, tried a, a, a partial paleo diet and it made a radical difference in my arthritis. And um, it was this was such a, a transformative change in my life that it sent me on a path to try to understand nutrition. And um, quite frankly, the first thing I I did was because for me, paleo is helping. I read Lauren Cordain's book, The Paleo Answer at that time. I think it had come out a, a few years before that. Um, and uh, But anyway, I, I began to realize that chronic diseases are driven by processed foods. And that's something that is that I did not learn in medical school. And I don't think any medical students learn in medical school anywhere at least in for the most part in allopathic traditional or conventional type medical schools like i went to um and uh but anyway so i began to learn that processed foods um are driving uh chronic disease and eventually um, i came across weston a price's research in in for me in 2013 
and uh, which solidified that whole uh, paradigm that processed foods are nutrient deficient. I didn't understand their toxicity at that point, um, but I understood that they were nu severely nutrient deficient and that was driving disease. But anyway, this, this made me um, question whether processed foods might be driving age-related macular degeneration um, because I, I already understood that processed foods were driving coronary heart disease and metabolic syndrome and diabetes and obesity. I knew that. Um, I didn't understand, you know, all, all the reasons why, but I knew that. So I questioned whether or not processed foods might also be driving macular degeneration. And so I began to investigate that in 20, late 2013. And by 20, early 2015, I was so convinced I was on the right path that I, uh, with that hypothesis that I left pra ophthalmology practice um, and began to pursue this full time. And so I eventually, we published a paper, published a book. Um, and then I'll just say, you know, just to kind of finish up this story by 2018 or so, 2019, I was finding that it was the vegetable oils that are the huge driver of all of this chronic disease. And uh, it, I just wasn't seeing that there were very many people on this path talking about this. And so, so I began to present uh, on, on that subject, um, how omega-6 rich vegetable oils are driving chronic disease. And by chronic disease, um, I, the, that, that refers to uh, almost every disease you actually would think of. The, the big ones are coronary heart disease, hypertension, stroke, cancers, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, age-related macular degeneration, all the autoimmune diseases like lupus, rheumatoid, um, type 1 diabetes, um, uh, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, all of those, and then all, most all of the rare chronic diseases are well, which is another category that's just exploding, all these rare disorders that physicians didn't even, didn't even know about 20 or 30 years ago uh, for the most part. And, uh, but anyway, that's been my area of, of investigation over the, you know, the, especially the past eight years is vegetable oils and, and chronic disease. Okay, yeah, and and you ruled out uh, stuff like sugar because you actually went through the, was it the uh, records of eye doctors or how did you come to that conclusion that it was just the vegetable oils versus, um, you know, the other flour and sugar, other processed food? Are you, are you talking specifically about macular degeneration or in general? Um, e either or both. But, oh, yeah, 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 okay. Sure. So, um, yeah, I could, I could jump right into that because I mean, I, I love this topic and it's where I've really been, uh, focused more so in the past couple of years is, is, um, you know, trying to decipher out, you know, is, are these diseases driven primarily by vegetable oils or by or by sugar. And, you know, they all, just so we know, I'll just go, hit this quickly and I can, I can go into more detail, but for those who've never heard any of this before, um, 
it's really incredibly important to understand that that all of these diseases were, you know, like like all the chronic diseases essentially were rare in the 19th century, rare or unknown uh, in the 19th century and even the early 20th century. So coronary heart disease was um, practically unknown. There was eight papers about coronary heart disease in the 19th century. It was, um, uh, it was, there was only, I think, two or really three papers. And these are mostly case reports on coronary heart disease that led to myocardial infarction, heart attack. Um, mm -hmm. Three papers in the 19th century. Uh, and, you know, and for those who don't know that today, coronary heart disease is the leading cause of death worldwide. It's the leading cause of death in the United States and has been since the 1930s. Um, it takes about one out of every three lives. Um, so cancer, very briefly. So cancer uh, in the city of Boston in 1811 um, took the lives of one in 188 people, 0.5%. By 1900, cancer took the lives of one in 17 people. Today, cancer takes almost again, one in three, almost in the United States, almost as many as heart disease. So it's it's 32.1% of all deaths, I believe, uh, for cancer. Um, obesity, um, again, just very quickly, obesity uh, was known to affect only 1.2% uh, of American males between the ages of 18 and 80 in the 19th century. This is Scott Allen Carson's work. He went back and analyzed uh, prisoners in various states, mostly Texas and Nebraska. Obesity was 1.2% in, in the 19th century, at least in men. There's no data on women at all. Um, the next data was from was in 1960 in the United States and obesity was 13%. So this is when people think we were really lean and healthy. And it's not true. Obesity had risen 11 fold since the 19th century. Um, and so was at 13% by 1960, 14% uh, by 1980. I'll just jump all the way to today or 2018, we're at 42 and a half percent of Americans are obese and another 31.5%, I believe it is, overweight. So there's a total, 74% of Americans now are overweight or obese. Wow. Um, metabolic syndrome, very similar, same situation. So it was unknown in the 19th century. Um, it was essentially uh, 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 reviewed for the first time by Kylan and Marinon in 1921, 1922. And then it was mentioned again in another paper in the 1940s. I can't think of that author offhand. Um, we, we're at, we were at, uh, I don't have those numbers handy, but, but you know, we, we're something like 24% uh, uh, metabolic syndrome by the 1980s, I believe it was, um, and more like, uh, um, well, let me just, I'm going to jump all the way to 2016 when we were in people everywhere know, know this, that 88% of Americans, um, could not meet five criteria of metabolic health. And then the most recent data, I think 2018, um, 
93% of Americans could not meet five criteria of metabolic health. So only 7% of Americans are metabolically healthy. And when you're talking about metabolic health, you're talking about the things that make us unhealthy uh, and are associated with also with coronary heart disease and really with all these other conditions, cancers, Alzheimer's, macular degeneration, all that. And and so what are those things? Well, metabolic syndrome really is, is it's a cluster of visceral obesity, insulin resistance, hyperglycemia or high blood sugars, um, uh, lipid disorders, you know, uh, high, you know, abnormal lipids and um, uh, hypertension. So I think I got the five of those anyway. Um, so, so those, those five things. So, so, you know, around 93% of Americans today can have abnormalities in those parameters and those parameters lead uh, to all of this other disease essentially. And so why is this? So let's get back to this question about, you know, is this sugar or vegetable oils? And I'll go, and I'm going to start by saying that you know, so we're, we're, we're getting a, we're in the process of trying to get this paper published where we've looked at all this. And I'll say that if you go back to 1865, in the United States, um, this is when we had almost no processed foods at all. The only processed food was sugar. And it was only 4% of the diet. We have the data and Stefan Guillenet has the data We've both published that. They're both virtually the same. 4% of the diet um, in 1865 was, you know, was sugar. We didn't have refined flour at that time because that required uh, roller mill technology, which was, in, in, which was uh, invented and then utilized beginning in 1880 worldwide. So, that, so anyway, so that gave us refined wheat flour, 1880. And then and we and we got vegetable oils beginning right after the American Civil War is when cottonseed oil was introduced into the diet 18, 1866 roughly. Um, and then you know trans fats that's the last of the processed major processed food components and that was that started really with Crisco introduced by Procter and Gamble in 1911. So so by by 2000. Uh, nine, I believe it was 63% of the American diet is made up of those four foods. And I use the term loosely, um, so, but, but basically 63% of the American diet is highly processed food. It's refined sugar, refined flours, vegetable oils, and trans fat. And so that's the problem right there. That's the big picture. Okay. Now, now, if we look at, so we want to get this question, is it the sugar or is it the vegetable oils? That's the question we, that, you know, to me, that's a huge question. Now I want to start off by saying, because this makes people angry. Um, this just the very fact that I'm bringing this data forward about sugar, but it's because I'm, I'm not here to defend sugar. I want to put that right out front. Um, it, it's just that I think sugar is in part taking a blame for vegetable oils, but let's so let's go to this data because it, and I'm gonna give you data on diabetes, uh, type two diabetes, because it really is the quintessential metabolic disease. And so 
so you know as you progress through metabolic syndrome eventually if you continue to eat these foods these processed foods you will you you may very well end up either diabetic or pre-diabetic and mm -hmm. and uh so so we need to look at this carefully so here so here's let me give you some statistics on diabetes so sir william osler in 1890 published data in his book, um, in his uh, first classic textbook, and I can't think of the name of that book. I think it's textbook of medicine. But, um, but anyway, he, he published the data on diabetes prevalence, um, which was taken from the US census in 1890, and it was 2.8 per 100,000 people. Now, this is a staggeringly small number compared to today, which would be 13,000 per 100,000 people or 13%. That's where we are today. And, I'm gonna, and I'll just tell you, so this is where we went. We were, so this is the percentage of diabetes in, in uh, 1890, 0.0028%. By 1935, we're at 0.37%. 1960, 0.91% diabetes. 2016, 13%. Okay, so we went from 0.0028% to 13%. This is, an, this is a, a 4,643-fold increase. Now, if you look at statistics, if, a, if any number doubles, like if, you're, if your number went from you know, one, di one diabetic per thousand to two diabetics per thousand, if it doubled, that is always statistically significant. Yeah. Pretty much. It's almost always statistically significant. All right. So this went up more than 4,500 fold. It's incredibly powerful number. But let's look at the, so here's the, let's go to the, the sugar first, because this is really interesting. So in 19, I'm just going to use, to keep it simple, because we can't use graphics here. I'm just going to try to, I'm going to throw out numbers from two, dates 1935 versus 2016 so in 1935 americans were consuming 440 calories worth of sugar that was 22 and a half percent of their diet and we have this data it's published okay night uh by 2016 sugar was 526 calories 24 percent of our consumption all right so we we were at and again, 1935, 22.5% of calories as sugar. 2016, 24% of calories as sugar. Went up on, on a, yeah, only 1.5% uh, increase in, in terms of the, the uh, absolute increase in sugar consumption as a percentage, okay? And it went up 86 calories in terms of the absolute increase in sugar. Now let's look at vegetable oils in comparison. So vegetable oils in 1935 were 16 grams a day. This is not good. This is why we had heart disease became the leading cause of death in the 1930s because we were at more than three teaspoons of vegetable oils per day, but that's 146 calories. By 2016, we're at 79 grams a day. 2010, we, in fact, we were at 80 grams a day, but in 2016, 79 grams of vegetable oils per day are 713 calories. So that went from 
seven and a half percent of our total calories in 1935 to 29% of our calories in 2016. So that's an absolute increase of 21 and a half percent. So in other words, while one and a half percent of our diet uh, of our total dietary calories between 1935 and 2016 were replaced with sugar, 21 and a half percent of our diet was replaced with vegetable oils. Okay. Let me rephrase that another way. One fifth of the diet, more than one fifth of our diet in America between 1935 and 2016 became vegetable oils. And during that time frame, diabetes went from 0.37% to 13%. That, between those two numbers, that's 35-fold increase, 3,400% increase in diabetes in that time frame. Now, I don't have statistics on this. One of my colleagues, that one of my research colleagues, is going to be analyzing this data to look at correlation. But I think, you, you know, you can probably even just hear this right. and see that there's almost no correlation here between sugar and diabetes. And of course, all of these other diseases, um, coronary heart disease, stroke, well, I shouldn't say stroke because I don't have data for sure on that. Coronary heart disease, cardiometabolic disease, um, cancers. Uh, this, of course, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, um, obesity, if I didn't say it, Alzheimer's, dementia, macular degeneration, all of these disorders are following the same pathway. And of course, the numbers in terms of the data, in terms of the sugar and the vegetable oils, they apply to all of these diseases the exact same way. So you just look at the, um, you know, the, the, the data versus the outcomes in disease. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And, and and just from memory, having been around when these foods were increasing, I remember when we when we did, you know, have a, like the fast food switch to using vegetable oil instead of the beef tallow because they thought they thought it was healthier and everybody was switching to margarine from butter because right. uh, they were told it was better for their heart and and uh, actually, people thought you were really bad if you didn't <laughs> switch out your butter for <laughs> margarine, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, and everybody got those big bottles of oil on their counter next to their stove, you know, to cook in. I yeah. just, just from memory, um, you can see that the increase, and then not, not even to mention the food that comes in boxes and packages, and then, you know, the increase in frozen foods and and uh, boxed foods. Yeah, it's just, it's just absolutely uh, dreadful. And, you know, I, so I, I, I always in my presentations, I, um, I, I show that when, when I say we're at the 50,000 foot view here, because most people recognize processed foods are terrible. In fact, it's e even the World Health Organization and the Pan American Health Organization, and just, uh, just, scads of uh, scientific papers have connected processed food to to chronic disease um, um, 
but you know, but uh, but but yeah, we you know, it was. I grew up. I, I was born in 1960, and um, and so we grow up uh, with my family thinking that um, that uh, you know, Crisco and margarine were good. That's what we were told, right? And yeah. so yeah, that's what we ended up cooking with too. But but anyway, yeah, these are the these are are definitely the major drivers of disease. And, uh, oh, what I was going to say, so at the 50,000 foot view is that, um, is that processed foods drive disease by, by two pathways and it's nutrient deficiency and toxicity. So the processed foods, they're very, very low in, uh, in the vitamins we need, especially the fat soluble vitamins, A, D, and K2. Um, you, you, they're just, they're just not virtually almost not present in processed foods. Um, uh, those are the vitamins that are so difficult to come by in the, in the food, the broad food supply, A, D and K2, but they're also deficient in all the minerals. And, and then the second pathway is that they, these, these foods are toxic. And I think the toxicity uh, is more than 90% driven by the vegetable oils and their products and their downstream products are Crisco and the margarines and, um, and those kinds of, uh, the, those kinds of, uh, products. And that, that toxicity from the vegetable oils, that's th that, what I mean by that is that they are, uh, ultimately the high omega six in the diet with, uh, the, the omega-6 linoleic acid, which is the primary omega-6 fat of these vegetable oils, um, that they, uh, they are ultimately pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, toxic, directly toxic, and nutrient deficient. And if you put those four pillars of hazard together, you have the recipe for metabolic disaster. And that's the recipe that drives all of this disease essentially. Okay. So what should what should um what should people switch to then? Yeah, so I mean first of all we have to uh, again getting at the big picture is we we need to be consuming an ancestral diet. Mm -hmm. And by an ancestral diet I mean we eliminate the foods of modern commerce, as Weston A. Price would have called it, the, the displacing foods of modern commerce. And these are all of the already prepared, um, you know, packaged, boxed, canned types of foods. And we eliminate those four, as much as possible, those four categories of processed foods that I mentioned, the added sugars, the refined flours, the vegetable oils, and the trans fats. Now, if we get into the vegetable oil, so people, you know, I think we, you know, it just seems as though we're obsessed with uh, uh, consuming oils. And I don't yeah. quite understand this, but, but people are constantly asking me, well, what kind of oils should I cook with? Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and let me just say that, you know, the, the really high omega-6 oils those are, I'll just name them. So there's soybean, corn, canola, cottonseed, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, 
uh, sesame and peanut. All of those are the high omega-6 oils. Those are all over 20% omega-6 linoleic acid. Again, linoleic acid is the 18 carbon omega-6 fat that accounts for about 90% of the omega-6 in any diet. And so, so now, now let me uh, contrast that with natural food. So if you look at natural animals, whether they be um, beef, you know, cattle, you know, buffalo, bison, um, any type of ungulates, um, or chicken, or pigs, pork, um, all of those animals, when they are consuming their native traditional diet, um, and those of course are very different, but we can come back to that if you want. But when they're consuming their native traditional diet, they're not raised in CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations fed GMO corn and soy. Those animals have omega-6 linoleic acid in their body fat that does not exceed about two and a half percent of calories. This is critical to understand. And so this is what we should be consuming. And this is where our fats should primarily be coming from, I believe, is these types of animals. Now, when you talk about beef or ungulates in general, the hooved animals that are herbivores, they, uh, because they have a, a multi-compartment stomach that uh, you know, the multi-stomachs, they have a biohydrogenation uh, chamber, a built-in biohydrogenation chamber, and they can take corn and soy, these high omega-6 foods, and they can hydrogenate them into saturated and monounsaturated fats, and that's what they store. So if you're, so even the CAFO-raised cattle, let's say, that are consuming, G, you know, corn and soy or GMO corn and soy, um, they will still have a very low omega-6 in their body fat. Not quite as low as the ones that are just consuming grass all their lives, but mm -hmm. the difference is not very big. In, in other words, so let's say that a, a ballpark um, omega-6 linoleic acid in the fat of cattle that are raised 100% on grass their omega-6 linoleic acid in their body fat will be about 2%, but it'll only be about 25 to 3.5% roughly in an animal that's fed GMO corn and soy. And again, this is cattle. But, mm -hmm. but if you look at chicken and pork, which are monogastric animals, they're like people, one stomach, they don't have a biohydrogenation or fermentation chamber that they can hydrogenate these unsaturated fats to saturated and monounsaturated fats. So they will, when they're fed like chicken and pork, chicken and pigs, I should say, when they're fed um, in CAFOs, uh, this uh, corn and soy, their body fat, omega-6 linoleic acid will end up being around 20%. So it becomes a, like almost like a vegetable oil in terms of the omega-6 in the fat. And so what happens to us is that we then, um, when we consume high omega-6 in our diet, our body fat stores in us, in humans, begins to reflect what we're consuming. So if we consume a high omega-6 diet, then we will develop a high omega-6 body fat. And this is proven 
uh, in the data. And what, you know, what we, and, and so, so let me just, let me just paint the two pictures. So for example, in 1865, we've modeled the American diet um, based on all ancestral food. And the omega-6 linoleic acid consumption in 1865, before we had any seed oils in the diet, was about 2.2 to 2.6 grams. Okay, that's one, about 1.1% 1 .1 of the diet in 1865. By 2008 or 10, I believe it was, um, when we were consuming 80 grams of omega-6 linoleic acid in the United States, um, our omega-6 linoleic acid consumption was 11.8% of the diet, all right? And so, and so if you look at, and, and, and let, me just, let me just paint a picture as to what happens to the omega-6 in our body fat. So there's a few populations in the 1960s and 70s in the South Pacific that were consuming totally ancestral diets um, and this was, uh, this was in the, uh, New Zealand, um, and in the, in the Tokelauans and the Pukapukans. Um, but anyway, their body fat, omega-6 linoleic acid averaged around 2.8%. All right. This is what it should be, but Americans were at 9.1% omega-6 linoleic acid by 1959, because we were consuming something like 19 grams of seed oils a day. And by 2005, I believe it was, or 2008, possibly, um, we were at, again, this is when we were at 21.5% of our diet as omega-6. Uh, I'm sorry, 11, um, let, me, let me back up here. 11.8% of our diet as omega-6 on average. And in our body fat, it was 21.5%. Um, okay, so we should be Omega-6 linoleic acid in our body fat should be under 4%, probably under 3%. Where are we as of 2008 or 10? 21.5%. To me, this is the entire answer. So when people look at this, getting back to the diet, they have to realize that you can't, if you just eliminate the vegetable oils, but you, you're consuming lots of fat from CAFO-raised pork and chicken, you not get your body fat linoleic acid down to where it needs to be and therefore eliminate all these problems, the pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, toxic and nutrient deficient biological milieu that drives all this disease. So if you have heart disease or you want to avoid cancer or you've already got metabolic syndrome or you've got some markers, you know, you're, you, you know, you're overweight or you've got visceral obesity or hypertension, um, or, or you've already got macular degeneration, any of these disorders, and you want to put a stop to this and you want to reverse this, you've got to A, get all the vegetable oils out of your diet and B, also get rid of these, uh, these high, you know, these CAFO raised animals that are high in omega-6 in your diet. And it's hard to find chicken and uh, pork that's been ancestrally raised, but it is being done. And be, because of this, research, there are more and more uh, farmers and ranchers that are, that are, uh, you know, raising their, their, their um, animals in this sort of a way. And, and this is incredibly important to our health. 
Okay, so you want to really look for it to say actually pastured, not just necessarily organic because um, like the supermarket sell, you know, well, they say vegetarian fed. Yes. <laughs> to try to trick you, I think, right? So you really want to go to like your farmer's markets, maybe your local farms then. You, you do. There, there's a lot of that's They, they call that um, in the industry, they call that uh, greenwashing. I think they yeah. call that where they use that. You probably know that better than I do, Maggie, that, you know, they're, they're using these terms that like, a lot of like, if you look at beef, a lot of the, you know, the packages may say pasture raised, but the, the reality is, is it's trickery because almost all cattle, for example, are raised on pasture initially. You know, they so the, the the typical rancher would raise his cattle, his or her cattle on on uh, uh, pasture until they're um, roughly 800 pounds or so, which I, in in today's world probably takes eight to 12 months. And then and then they're sold into CAFOs and there they get they get grain finished and that's where they're fed the corn and soy. And uh, it's not that way, you know, you know, for chickens and, and pigs, a lot of those, they're, they're raised in CAFOs their entire lives. They have very, very short lives. And that's all they, that's all they get to eat is just GMO corn and soy. So they're okay. just dreadful. And I'll, I'll just mention, Maggie, if I could, yep. because this is a question people ask all the time is what about olive oil? And in the end, and, and just very briefly, um, I know we don't have a lot of time here, but very briefly, olive oil, if it's if it's pure, authentic, extra virgin olive oil, I would say it's probably pretty safe. Now realize that even olive oil averages about 10% omega-6 linoleic acid, but the range is high. It ranges from about 3.2% omega-6 linoleic acid up to 22%, I believe it is. And that's out of 800 some samples that were tested in one study. So the range is huge. So when you go buy olive oil, for the most part, you're not gonna have any idea what that omega-6 linoleic acid is. Secondly, even more important is that 79% of the, ol the olive oils on the market today cannot meet the criteria for the, 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 of good quality extra virgin olive oil, according to the North American Olive Oil Association, the NAOOA, uh, that means that they're either adulterated or they're old and oxidized um, mm -hmm. and the quality is poor. And so this is the problem is, is, and this is why I don't consume olive oil either. Uh, okay. not, number one is it's higher in omega-6, no matter where you get it, than it is from, than what your omega-6 would be from a good quality animal fat, like butter or good quality, you know, non-CAFO raised uh, uh, lard or, or tallow, you know, from animals not raised in CAFOs that are raised naturally. But, you know, this is why I tell people just you know, if you tolerate it, just eat butter. And if you don't tolerate butter because you have an allergy or, uh, uh, a, a problem with the casein, the, the protein in coming from milk, then you can all, you can do ghee because ghee is clarified butter and that has all the casein removed. Um, and so I think every, I think as far as I know, everybody can tolerate, even people who have severe allergy to, uh, to milk, uh, to milk, milk products, they tolerate ghee. And so ghee 
Again, the omega-6 linoleic acid in butter or ghee would be about one and a half to maybe two and a half percent. So it's brilliant. And it gives you vitamins A, D, and K2. And we haven't even gotten a chance to get into that. But that's where we get those vitamins, A, D, and K2 is from these animal fats. And when we replace animal fats with vegetable oils, you're also, this is, you're losing those vitamins. And that is, that is fundamental. Yeah. Well, I just remember my mom cooking fried chicken now in, uh, you know, grocery store chicken cooked in either Crisco or Wesson oils. <laughs> yeah, we did too. <laughs> my parents did. Oops, what could have gone wrong? They did all the time growing up. And that's why one of the reasons I ended up with health problems so um, early. early on, yeah, was um, we, you know, we, we bought into all that. We were using margarine. We cooked everything in, in Crisco. It's a wonder we, you know, we weren't, it, it didn't kill us all, right? But I know, I mean, hydrogenated cottonseed oil, like how, what could go wrong there? You know, like it doesn't <laughs> yeah. even sound like a food. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I said I, when I mentioned these food, I say I use the term loosely. These are not really, you know, I think if anybody ever went to a you know, factory and they saw what, how vegetable oils are produced, you know, they're, they're crushed, heated, pressed, and then chemically alkalinized, bleached, and deodorized. And if you look at the muck that comes out of that in one of these factories, as these oils are being processed, I don't think anybody would look at that and say, oh, we should be eating that. I mean, there's, there, this is, uh, it's just a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, to me, these are chronic metabolic biological poisons, these vegetable oils, and they clean them up and they deodorize them so that they look pretty and they don't stink and you don't taste them in the food. That's what they, that's what they have, you know, the, the vegetable oil manufacturers have done. And it took them decades and decades, you know, to, to figure out how to, how to accomplish that. And, and so that they could, you know, basically replace and supplant the animal fat. So basically, that's what they did. They replaced butter, lard, and beef tallow. And they, and they're, in terms of business, vegetable oil is a booming business. It's, it was very successful, the, the edible oil industry. And I, I think you really can't go to any restaurant that has a grill, right? That doesn't put some kind of a poor quality oil on it, some kind of restaurant supply um, right. type of. Yeah, in the United States, it's almost exclusively um, soybean and canola used in, in most all restaurants. Um, and, and 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 the ones that don't, they 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 think they're doing better, and they'll use something like rice bran oil, and it's it's really not a significant improvement um, in my in my view. So, but you but but the vegetable oils are about one sixth the cost of butter, and so you know margins are slim in the restaurant business, and uh, and and so this is why um, they're going to they're always using almost always using uh, vegetable oils, even in some of the very, very fancy restaurants. So, so I've been in many restaurants and, you know, ask, and ask, you know, do you have butter? And many restaurants do, don't, they don't have a, a pat of butter or a stick of butter or in the entire restaurant. They just don't, they don't have it. They're, they buy, you know, they buy their vegetable oils in huge containers, like five and 20 gallon containers, I think they are. Um, and that's what they cook with. 
Okay. Well, tell us about, uh, you have a new book coming out and hopefully this will solve our problems, right? Yeah, I sure, uh, well, I, if people would follow it, it would. Um, the book is um, called The Ancestral Diet Revolution. Um, yeah, I think people will be uh, very, we've gotten back to lo lots and lots of great testimonials uh, already um, from those who have read it. And uh, yeah, we're really excited about it. This book is really the culmination of 10 years of research and investigation and almost three years of research and writing to actually produce this book. So I think it's, uh, I think it's going to, it's going to uh, turn things around a little bit, I hope. Oh, I hope so, too. Um, well, I'm looking forward to getting a chance to read it. And um, I did, on your suggestion, buy some liver. <laughs> so I'll be it? trying that. And uh, I don't know if oh, you want to. Oh, you're trying liver. I, well, I just bought it today. So uh, because I had to find like a good quality, I had to, you know, um, go outside my own little grocery store to find some of better quality. So I will be giving that a shot. So see how that goes. Yeah. yeah. Liver is a, is a great, it's the most nutrition, nutritious food on the planet, period. Yeah. And, uh, people, uh, add, people get rid of vegetable oils and eat animal meats and add little, small amounts of liver, just a half an ounce to an ounce in their diet per day drastically changed the entire population's health just yeah, literally, literally in weeks or months you know okay and that's what convinced me that you said you only had to have that like half an ounce because i have i have tried cooking it before without a lot of success yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i'm not a i'm not a big fan of liver either but i eat it almost every day just a, I, I eat it it's semi-frozen is the way as i've mentioned to you offline here but uh, uh i eat it semi-frozen and just a half an ounce to an ounce a day on most days yeah all right well uh tell people other than ordering your their book your book um where else can they find you um yes yeah, so uh very soon so we'll have so um my first foundation was cure amd foundation that's regarding my age-related macular degeneration and that's at cure amd.org it's a nonprofit and then we've started a second nonprofit called ancestral health foundation and that is that will be at ancestralhealthfoundation.org so that is also not launched yet but that will be that website will be launched soon so those are the other places and then I, i'm all you know there's there's lots of uh, recordings on youtube that i that i've done um Again, if people just look for Chris Kenobi, it's K-N-O-B-B-E. They'll look for my name on YouTube. Um, they'll find uh, a lot of presentations that I've done over the last uh, almost seven years. Yeah, and that's where I first saw you. I um, I think I mentioned my mother had macular degeneration. And um, so I was really uh, surprised to see you know, what you had to say and all that research into the, the um, you know, the eye uh, disease records, um, because my brothers were looking at, you know, oh, should we get uh, genetic testing to see if we're going to get it too? And after I watched that, I sent a copy to everybody and said, well, just stop eating the vegetable oils. Yeah. <laughs> get rid of them. 
So. That's all you need to do. Just go to an ancestral diet yeah. and get rid of the vegetable oils. Um, and I, and I think, yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't see any reason to do genetic testing for that. Yeah. People can do it, but it's not going to, you, you still need to do the same thing. It's, it's just kind of like saying, well, should I genetic test myself? Let's say if, if you, you know, if you had higher risk of uh, breast cancer, let's say, but the, but the answer is still the same is to prevent that you've got to get to an ancestral diet. And that means getting rid of the, the it also means getting rid of the vegetable oil. So yeah, I'm just not a big believer in spending all this, these fortunes on this genetic testing that leads us for the most part um, nowhere because the answer to me is still the same. The answer is, is you have to consume an ancestral diet if you want to avoid these, these chronic diseases. The book should be available May 15th on Amazon and other online booksellers. So if you're listening to this before that, mark your calendar to order it. I highly recommend watching Dr. Kenobi's YouTube video on age-related macular degeneration. The records he went through provide a lot of answers that are difficult to test, but because of the availability in sugar and seed oils at different times and in different locations, certain factors can be ruled out in a way that's more difficult to do today. Thanks again for listening to the Off of the Couch podcast. You can find me at offofthecouch.com. Take a small step. See you next week.